Well, welcome back to Sheep Stuff You Should Know. This is Ryan Mahoney coming to you from Amy Tower One. And today I am joined by my good friend, Dan Macon from UCANR Asylum Studios up there in, <laughs> in, uh, in Auburn, California. How are you today, Dan? I'm bouncing off the padded walls this morning. I'm good. That way, every time I swear you move your your computer angle, so you know I got like the whiteboard this time. I had the brick wall last time, and like it just keeps moving around. So I try to try to keep you on your toes. I was try halfway to... through the intro and I started to second guess myself. Oh, All right, <laughs> <laughs> Rio Vista. Good, hot, 102 today, or 100 degrees. Holy smokes! Yeah, how about you? Not that hot, but. But hot today and then cooling off tomorrow and the rest yeah. of the week, it looks like. So, did you, did you get any smoke last night? No. Where, where was, did you have fire down there? I think there's a fire brewing up in Clear Lake area, somewhere around there. And anyway, oh, there yeah. was, we yeah. had just, it was pretty neat. Rio Vista is in kind of a cool area where we get this southwest wind almost every night, no matter what the day. Yeah. Even today, I'm complaining it's hot, but this morning there was a little breeze, and and tonight there'll be a little breeze move in, um, and keeps us from getting hot, hot like the valley. But um, last night, coming home from swim practice out of the Bay Area, um, there was just this line of smoke, and Rio oh, Vista, like on the south side of Rio Vista, there was nothing, and on the north side, it was pretty inundated because that north wind was coming in and that southwest wind was hitting it and kind of yeah, was hitting that it. It was, breeze. Wow. it's really cool to see it's it's always fun to, I, I always like looking at <laughs> i don't know i i think as a farmer or rancher you always get fascinated by the weather and how cool it actually is you know? <laughs> i think so too not and cold I think you're, cool you're always yeah exactly yeah. you're always kind of looking at sky conditions and yeah i, I may have mentioned this before I, when i was Working on uh, my master's degree on drought, there was a study done in Australia. They were looking at how many different weather apps ranchers in Australia had during the drought. And guys were having like 10 or 15 different weather apps on their phone. And they would check each one of them multiple times a day just to find a forecast that looked better than the other. Yeah. How many do you have on your phone? How many do you check? Uh, Four. Yeah, I checked two. What do you check? What ones do you use? Oh, I use the Apple Weather now. They have a, they have a, uh, and I don't look at the daily forecast as much as I look at the, um, the Pacific Ocean and the cells and how things are moving out there. Because mm -hmm. um, I can, I give myself a little hope. You know, I'm like, oh wow, there's a big <laughs> storm out there over Japan. Maybe that'll make it, and never does. But uh, that, and then I like, I get a, I get a local forecast. Uh, that's specific for the county that's pretty detailed and it doesn't it doesn't predict the weather it gives the percentages of everything and that's always that's oh, okay. pretty that's really pretty beneficial for us and it splits our county i mean you know but uh in california you go like three miles five miles and the weather is different you have yeah. different things and so this this weather service that i got it it splits up the county into like six different regions and has different forecasts for different areas. Um, and then it'll, it's specific for ag for cropping mostly, but they'll have like freeze warnings for Susan Valley or wind warning in the South Delta, or, you know, they'll have like, it's really specific, which is pretty nice. Is so, that a subscription? Yeah. Service? We pay like a hundred bucks a year for it. Yeah. 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 That's cool. It, it's, it's pretty handy. It, it's yeah. It's a really, really valuable tool and it's really nice. You know, when they, 
when you see that 10 to 20% chance of rain every day, all winter long. And you're just like, yes, it's coming. Maybe it's coming. And then, you know, six months later, you're still sitting there. Yes. It's going to make it. (laughs) (laughs) I think since we talked the last time, so the, like the Tuesday after mother's day. So our rule appears that you put your tomatoes in the ground mother's day and then they're safe. Yeah. And the Tuesday after mother's day, I got out to move water at the ranch and we had ice all over the pasture and uh, my tomato plants are, are, well, my tomatoes made it. All the peppers got killed. Uh, Well, you're going to be jealous. I've been, we picked our first tomatoes, first cherry tomatoes three, four days ago. My wife was pretty excited. I gave her the first five and then now I've been going out to the garden and eating them all before they get in the house. You guys and, that live in the tropics can do yeah, stuff. I know. And then do. I got, I got my first big tomato. It's like that wow. big around. It's like a, I don't know. It's some Sonoma hybrid thing. I got at some cool. fancy store, but yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm kind of excited to cut it open and eat it. So very cool. Yeah. What, what's going and on I pulled some sh- onions out of the ground for, I pulled some onions out for my, uh, for my lamb shanks I'm whipping up tonight. So our, uh, our onions are about ready. Our garlic I'm going to pick tonight. Yeah. The garlic is, what do you look for in the sign? Like, how do you, when do you decide to pick your garlic or onions and what do you harvest them all at once? Or do you kind of pick them as needed? (laughs) So you're asking the livestock advisor, a farming question, and he's going to fail miserably. I'm asking my friend (laughs) with gardens in California, like me, the sheep rancher gardens in California. And my, the thing is, so my dad's a pretty phenomenal garden enthusiast he grows yeah. like hundreds of onions and i ask him these questions and he always is like ah oh, it's super easy just you know you just pull them out when they're ready and it's just you know <laughs> oh, i just do that and man i yeah i keep trying to take his advice but i can't i can't uh i can't get it i think he's holding back intentionally so that way he could beat me i th- that's uh, probably yeah that's probably yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so but anyway when do you how do you how do you harvest the garlic and onions so the Garlic, I wait until the, the leaves are starting to, the tops are starting to dry back. Yeah. Um, and then I'll, I'll dig them and, and let them dry a little bit more, like hang them in the garage or something, let them dry. Yeah. Onions, I'm not, I haven't grown onions very long. Yeah. So I'm still learning how to do it. I, my, my approach on the onions is to go pull one out if it looks big enough. Yeah. Go. So mine, they, they, I couldn't get mine to swell right. Uh, you know, they couldn't get them to swell. Yeah. And um, then, and the, it would, they would look great. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I need to cut the water back because it's, you know, they're going to start to die. And as they die and drown out, they'll concentrate the moisture into the, yeah. into the onion. Well, it didn't work. And so then <laughs> I, so then I might, I might talk to my dad once I, you know, I was kind of like, and I had to, you have to like play it off. Like, I'm not asking for advice, just kind of, like, Hey, you know, could I, you know, what, do you just keep water in your onions, you know, until they seed out or what do you, th- and anyway, he told me, no, 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 just keep pumping the water towards them. And, and he's right. You know, so I started watering them a little more and, and, uh, now they're starting to swell. Um, and they're still not mature. It's amazing how late they are. Yeah. For the yeah. Type, but they're, well, man, they're, they're really sweet. It's like a sweet Maui onion that I planted. So yellow. We did onion. some, some reds and we did some walla walla sweets. Yeah. 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 When I went to buy the seeds, they just, they weren't in the store. And the other problem I did is I had my daughter, uh, my middle daughter plant them all just cause you know, 
That's yeah. how you learn, right? That's right. Um, That's right. Anyway, she planted them all way too shallow. And so, like, I had to, like, pull dirt up onto it constantly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all uh, fun. It's good learning. But my tomato, is. my tomatoes, I'm very proud of my tomatoes this year. They, they I'm look impressed good. that you've got tomatoes before June 1st. Gosh, they're, I mean, they're, they're three feet tall, too. They're huge. And that's yeah. impressive. That's yeah. impressive. Pretty excited. So, what, any, what are any, we talking about today? Well, I wanted to talk about the elephants in the rooms. So, um, and, and I know you're an aspiring economist. And um, feral. I'm, a, I'm a feral economist, feral economist, feral yeah. economist. And I'm a, I'm a, a, I don't know. I just, I have lots of ideas and none of them are right. So I figured we ought to just put our thoughts together on, <laughs> on the subject of old croppers and imports. Oh and, yeah. Okay. Um, so I think one of the biggest struggles that a lot of people in the sheep industry are having right now is um you go and you try to sell a lamb and you try to sell a california springer to a feeder market and um you look at your video sales and you look at your auction trade or different areas and you'll see 250 to three dollars a pound for a hundred pound lamb mm -hmm. and then you go and you try to sell into the the large lamb market or traditional buyers and you can't get a bid <laughs> in California. And then you and, go and go ahead. And you, can, and you can't even get a bid on selling into some of the, the non-traditional ethnic market. Yeah. So you experienced that, right? Yeah. Did, right. Yeah. Right. And so, and so then, you know, you have this, you can't sell your live lamb and then you go into the grocery store and they're selling ground lamb, imported ground lamb in Safeway was $11 a pound yesterday the um, domestic ground lamb. I don't know what store uh, Rosie sent that from, but that was like $13 a pound. Yep. And yep. it's just, it's a, it's an astronomical disconnect yep. to me between supply, you know, supply demand imports and market discuss, you know, price discovery. It's just, it's things are weird. And I know that, I know if you take that and apply it to, COVID in general, uh, you know, there's a lot of that going on in all industries. There's a lot of weirdness, uh, yeah. But thankfully, we're sheep stuff you should know, so we can just complain about sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and weirdness is, is a, one of those economic terms that it takes years and years to, to fully understand. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and a couple master theses exactly. um, written 10 years after the fact might, exactly. might get to what exactly Might scratch happened. the surface, yeah. So yeah. we're going to solve the problems today. That's, <laughs> oh, good. that's the goal of today's podcast. But um, yeah, so I, I want, I, it's hard for me to kind of come up with a launching point on this topic, but um, because the, 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 the constant reaction is always blame imports, blame the Packer. You, right. Those are the two reactions and there's validity to both reactions. Right. But I feel like often in our conversations, we're missing the full picture of right. what, of everything that's going on. So I think right. the goal of today isn't so much to identify solutions as to maybe define some of these terms and understand the full picture and all the players in this, in this problem and, um, and, you know, hopefully spark some good conversations. So, um, so I guess let, let's, let's, 
So what, in your experience, you tried to market some light lambs and you ran into issues. What were the, what were the reasons or excuses given on why you couldn't get them sold? And then what, what was your approach or how, how did you go about solving that problem? Not, not quite solved yet. Um, well, you're going to get a ton of offers after this podcast because everybody <laughs> listening knows you have top end stuff and yeah, you'll get them sold. You'll get them sold by the time this airs day after this airs, you'll get, you'll be exactly. shipping them. You'll be importing them into Canada. So I just, just had a call as we were speaking from Roseville meat where we have some of our, oh, our cool. custom stuff gotten wrapped. So it'll be interesting to see what they have to say, mm -hmm. but uh, so maybe back up and kind of talk about how we've approached marketing our lambs the last couple of years. Um, we've had a buyer who's kind of a regional buyer that's developed a pretty good um, market for lamb carcasses under 40 pounds in the Bay area. Uh, and he, he will pay a premium for good lambs that are, um, you know, in that 65 to 80 pound live weight range. Uh, it's had a great market for him. He will, this person will always give us partial payment when we deliver the lambs, then he'll pay us the premium once he's got the, the carcass data back. And it's been a good market for us. And I always call about a, oh, about a month before we're going to be ready to market lambs and just confirm that, that he can take them and kind of get an idea what the price is going to be. So I called this week and, um, he said, I can't take them. I got no markets for them. And then he called back yesterday and, and said that um, he has had people that have been slipping in heavier lambs. Um, and so he'll get them, get them processed and find out he's got some 60, 70 pound carcasses. And he's got 40 pound carcasses sold. So he's got to take these 70 pound carcasses to his customers and they don't want him and won't pay him for them. So I, there seems to be something going on with, with big lambs coming through that marketing chain um, in a way that's disrupted his market. And that's translated. And, and by big lambs, you're talking, you're talking 120 to 40 pound lamb right. for the big, light lamb market. Big because lambs for because him. we right. are going to get into old crops, which are big, big lambs, and you're right. talking 180 to 220. Right, so, right, yeah. right. So big is relative, right? It depends on what your target input, yeah. target market is. Yeah, but it's important to yeah, important distinction. Yeah. So. so I mean, that's that's kind of where there's other options out there for us. And I, you know, like like anybody would, I went and looked at the market reports from the the closest livestock auctions to us. So, so just real quick to backtrack a little bit, when he told yeah. you, I don't have a market for it. Um, what, what, what was your reaction? You know, what, what was your, um, you know, did you say, Oh, he's, you know, is he this lying is to me? Is it like, what, what, you know, how, how did that hit you? And what was your response? You know, your, your gut response, which tends to be our first, I, I think, it'd be universal. If I get that call, you get that call. We're all going to respond a similar way. What was your response when he said that? This is a family program. So I will edit my response. Yeah. Um, no, my, my response, you know, it, it does kind of hit you kind of gut punch you when somebody you've been working with yeah. tells you can't don't, don't have a home for it. Can't take them. Yeah. And my, my, my initial gut response was, well, gosh, our lambs have always worked really well for you in the past. You, you told us that. Yeah. These are some of the best slams you get. 
and you know you don't know what kind of day the person on the other end of the lines had and, and all of that and, and so he actually i think felt kind of bad about the conversation which is why he called me back yesterday and went into mm-hmm. more detail about what's going on um but i also you know the other reaction to that was to start thinking about what our other options are and so um we're not set up to feed a lot of lambs out at home but we're going to feed a few out and yeah sell those direct and we're going to try to find other people that want to feed two or three lambs for their own freezer and, and sell those direct and then kind of see where we are um in another couple three weeks in terms of, of what we've got left to market so i i've been on the other end of that conversation yeah um, this spring yeah. and summer and, and recently i mean even today before the show i got a call there's a guy with a couple hundred head. Um, it's not enough for a truckload. They're good 90 pound lambs. They're they're Everything's good about them, but he can't, ju- they, he can't get them sold to the East because you can't fill a truck and get them moved. And there's too right. many for any of these local markets. And so he, right. they're like, what, what can you do? And I said, I really don't think I could do anything. I want to, I really want to help. And I think, you know, I ended up, I ended up actually giving them a bid of like, I don't know, two bucks a pound. But then if you go pull market reports, you're looking at 250, 260. Right. And I, I tell them, I'm like, right. you know, gosh, I, I, I want you to go out and find as much money, take this bid, shop it around. You normally, I wouldn't, you know, I don't like, you know, you can't shop bids and stuff like that, but it's really hard to field those calls and have to tell these people that are raising good animals, doing right. a good job and say, I, I can't do it. Right. And, right. And that, yeah, so it's, yeah, there's definitely two sides of that. Um, because, and then in my position, you know, then the flip side of that is, and I go to the people who buy my lambs and we're getting the same kind of response. We're not moving enough product. We're backed up in old crop inventory, um, right. getting pressure from the retailers, um, because the import values, uh, right. you know, there's a whole list of, of reasons. And, um, anyway, it's a, it's a very frustrating situation, I think for everybody on the production end, um. Yeah, and I think it, it, like you say, it translates through the whole system. I think, I think looking at it from from kind of your perspective, um, you know, you've got you've got to pencil in where you think those lambs are going to be value wise, if you can even get them sold, and it, yeah. it totally makes sense. Why would you Why would you keep buying stuff if you don't have a home for them when they're done there, or if you can't make money on them? Yeah. And then you have, you just have cost of capital risk right now with interest rates going up too. So if you pile a bunch of inventory, but then, you know, you have to stretch them a long period of time that, that that's an additional cost, um, that it's just, it's, it's, it's a really tough situation. I mean, and you know, I, I deal with that, but then so does anybody else that is going to buy, put cash out, buy lambs and then hold them. So it's not just me. And do you, do you find in a, in a market situation like this where you've got some of those big old cropper lambs backing up the rest of the system, does that kind of compound on itself too, or where you might have to feed lambs longer than you would like to just because you can't get them delivered? Does so that impact in, you? In our, in our situation, uh, we, we plan everything out uh, usually 90 days plus in advance. Mm-hmm. and um we have essentially windows that we work with and so we won't we don't really get backed up in our inventory um 
like other owners of of feeder animals mm-hmm. um that doesn't mean that doesn't happen to us it certainly has and um and the fact that we don't is the product of a really long-term working relationship that we've had right um and, and, it, and, it, and it works both ways we'll we'll sell at a discount for that value oftentimes you know a lot of times right. or different things like that so there's there right. there it's not all <laughs> it sounds like i got a good deal it's um it, it takes a lot of work and time and recognition of value exchange to to make that work because there is a value to that and um and it, it's worth something to us but um but but we do i mean right we sh- we shipped 210 pound lambs out of our feedlot last week so um yeah it's happening and and uh, i know the lambs coming out of the yards in colorado are bigger and yeah. and um, or the same size and it's it's a product of a lot of different factors um right. and i think even you talk to the the packers and they they don't like the big lambs because they don't fit in the boxes right they don't right. sell right they got to find different markets for it and um yeah it's just it's a this is a challenge our industry has every year and uh, or every couple of years depending on how we cycle and to some degree it's it's that tension between kind of your short term i got to get lambs marketed now and the longer term perspective on where the industry's heading, where you fit within that long term vision. I think that's that is kind of one of the one of the things I'm noodling around with. So one for of us the, right now. Well, what I what I I, I <laughs> I'm going to say a lot of things today that I'm not convinced are correct. They're ideas that I'm working <laughs> with, and so. Um, which is pretty counterculture right now. Typically you're supposed to have pretty firm opinions on everything. Um, the minute you hear of a topic. Everything's black and white, right? Yeah. But, um, so one of the issues that has been brought up and there there's truth in it, um, is that you have like, so you have, um, I don't know, 80 to 90% of the lambs born in the spring shipped off the U in the fall, and then they have to get stretched out or marketed through the bulk of the year. When mm-hmm. that doesn't happen, we have a crazy run in price like we had last year mm-hmm. because there are no old croppers to mm-hmm. fill, to to carry that inventory through. And so you have a run on lambs because you are short supply and the market goes through the roof for the producer, which is great. Um, and that's a great way for the U production segment to flex its leverage. We often don't get to have leverage when you run use, um, when you're mm-hmm. at the bottom of the production chain, same with the foundation. Yep. Yeah. Same with loggers, same with miners. Yep. Um, and, but when you're short supply, you're able to actually flex some leverage and get the market discover or price discovery to increase at your segment. Yeah. Um, but the downside of that is often when you come into a high run like that, everything takes time to work through its chain. And um, so then the next fall comes around, everybody has this shortage fresh in their mind. They go out and they overbuy or even buy correctly. And then you have uh, something happen. So um, Easter is the big season, lamb eating season for the year. And a lot of retailers and like I said, I'm treading in some, 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 uh, water. I know a couple have done this. I don't know how many, 
and I don't know it all firsthand. So there's lots of questions in there, but when you have a retailer go to the supplier and say, import lamb is half to, you know, under half price of what your, the American lamb is for the Easter season, we're going to, uh, we're going to have less orders of American lamb than what we were anticipating. And we're going to bring in imported lamb to sell because of the price difference. And so you end up projecting, you're going to get so much lamb sold in Easter. And then those orders get cut in half the week before Easter or the month before Easter. So all of a sudden those lambs that were going to go to town, then they get just dropped into the supply chain. They get backed up and backed up. And in the, in the lamb market in the U S we don't have a large kill. So, you know, one week getting backed up has pretty major impacts over long term, And so you end up backing up these old croppers, which then creates the supply glut, which then they also take up pen space. They take up um, area. And so your springers that would be coming behind them to kind of trade on that short market have to get traded on an old crop market, which depresses the price pretty substantially. And that's happened in the past. It's going to happen in the future, but that to, that's kind of one of the general thing. And that seems like it's in that story. It's very easy to blame the imports for selling the lamb cheap. It's easy to blame the packer for not projecting their kills properly. It's easy to blame the packer from pushing down the price because they got all these old croppers and trying to consume the old croppers. It's easy to blame the retailers for making the switch. Um, I don't want to blame anybody. I want to define what's happening and then I have a question at the end I want to get to, um, but it's so, I don't know. Do you want to take one of those segments or areas and maybe let me know what you think about, you know, say old croppers getting backed up or imports and their effect on the market? You know, I'd, I'd like to kind of pick one of those and dive into it. I think that'd be good. I think one of the things that struck me as you were talking, Ryan, um, kind of from the 30,000 foot elevation there's been a lot of look at the cattle cycle you know how prices are cyclical in the cattle market and and i wonder if part of our challenge in the sheep business is that um is part of our advantage too so you know you've got the ability to have an animal that was born this year marketed this year as finished product which we don't have in the cattle industry and because of the biology of sheep is our cycle compressed? So in other words, last year was a great market, right? Did people make a decision to expand that is showing up now as opposed to that would take two or three years in the cattle market to show up? I think, I well, a couple of thoughts. One is I think that the compressed cycle leads to increased volatility. Right, absolutely. Um, so your highs and lows are going to be much more dramatic in the yep. sheep. And then the yep. tighter supply gets, the more volatile it'll be as well. So you have two kind of major volatility drivers in the sheep industry that don't exist the same. In, and, and probably two more that I can think of that you mentioned. Imports are different in our industry than they are in the beef yeah. industry. And the seasonality of our product. You know, when you've got this one event that drives people's decisions for the entire year, the Easter market, 
that's going to increase the volatility too. But it's the Easter it market. Some- yeah, it's the Easter market, but then the lambs being born in Easter right. the previous year, right? So right, right. You're trying you're trying to right <laughs> fill the Easter market with the lambs that are a year old with keeping them under a year because a lamb has to be under right. a year old to be sold as lamb in the US. Right. And so you're really fighting to make that work. Another question for you on imports that I'm curious about. You know, I think part of the the impact in our industry from COVID was the disruption in the import market to some yeah. degree. That that and helps, as we that, that helps stabilize or that helped force the price increase at the retail level. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And so as we've come out of COVID and those imports have resumed, that price shock is part of what we're dealing with right now too, isn't it? Uh, part, partly. Yeah. So, um, I, so let, let, well, yeah, let's jump into imports. So imports, I've always felt imports are a very important, necessary part of the lamb supply in the U S I, I think we can't, we can't access and maintain markets and market growth in the U S without imports And the American lamb project always should focus on the premiums per the commercial lamb. So it almost is a, it's a premium brand on the bulk lamb that's sold in the U S and the bulk lamb that's sold in the U S is going to be imports. And it's just flat market demands. We don't have enough sheep to supply hundred percent of the demand. I think we can supply maybe 30% or something. And so you need 50, 60, 70% of the consumption to be imported. And the more people you get eating lamb, the better it is for American lamb as a brand, as long as you can focus and maintain that premium. So I, I don't want to just blame imports and cut them off because if no. you do that, you're going to just, you're going to kill consumption because we, we won't be able to get lamb to people and they'll forget about it. It won't be on menus. It won't be these places, but then you have this real, real, this real thing where you'll have, um, you'll have ground lamb in the store going for 13 bucks a pound for, or 12 bucks a pound for American lamb. And then the imported lamb that costs half as much for the retailer to acquire selling at a 10% discount. So they're acquiring it for 50% of the cost, but they're able to jump the margin so much and sell it at that same level. And so there's a major issue because as that spread widens, the incentive for retailers to cut American lamb out of their program increases because, you know, as, as you increase the, the potential profitability or the opportunity loss, yeah. they want, they're incentivized to switch um, because they're companies that are owned by stockholders. And, and then we get into like business ethics and morals, which is a whole nother conversation for um, the day we talk about Doyeski. And, um, <laughs> so one of those episodes, so, um, so we won't even go there, but, um, but anyway, so I, you know, there's this competing issue with imports I, that I see, um, happening and it's really playing out right now in the U S market pretty substantially. So I, would you agree with that? Do you have anything to add to kind of the definition of imports and kind of maybe some of the positives or negatives that I missed? No, I think I think that's right. I think the you know the price versus margin, profit margin is an important part of that consideration. 
I also, you know, there's, there's, there is this conversation at least kind of in direct marketing circles about um, primarily the size of American lamb cuts versus the size of the import cuts. And as somebody that really likes to eat lamb, I love a big lamb chop, love a big rack. Um, the direct market customers that I dealt with in the farmer's market kind of held New Zealand lamb up as the standard yeah. for, for premium product. And so I think there's, is that very, due to, is that due to education or buying previous buying experience? Or, you know, what was the kind of, what do you think was the driver previous, of that? previous buying experience? You know, the expectation that a chop would be, would be smaller portion um, the expectation or perception about production practices, I think, is part of that, whether it's whether it's valid or not. Um, so I do think there's this there's this kind of undercurrent. It's not a very big segment of the American market, consumer market, but there is this undercurrent that looks at the imports as the premium product. So, but wouldn't that be um, well? So I agree with you in perception but when you get down to dollars and saleability american lamb has and continues to main a, maintain a substantial premium you could sell american lamb into the into the retail and food service space at a higher price point than imported lamb despite that consumer set sentiment at to, yeah at a at a at a large like, scale yeah well and you but, but at, i guess when at, you take the american lamb board data and you talk about pricing you're American lamb holds a premium now Absol yeah. at, at that scale. Yes. At the on scale the nationwide Dan, scale at the scale of, of Dan Macon going to the farmer's market. But won't that be a, isn't that a natural, um, because we don't have enough lamb to supply all markets. Isn't that going to happen because most people's first experiences are going to be with an imported product. Because just, you know, statistically, you can, you go to the store and you buy a lamb chop, you got a 30% chance it's American and a 70% chance it's Australian or New Zealand. I think there's an element of that, but I also think there is an element of people's perception about what yeah. is a premium product that, that is not a standard definition. Where, where does it come from? What's the definition? How, how does it, how does a person form that? Because they bought they bought imported lamb and really liked it, had a good and experience, decided, and and then maybe bought something that was bigger and had a Mark, bad experience. Does um, hmm, does the negative experience have to factor in? Like in your when you were talking to these people, did all of, mm -hmm. did most of them have an experience with American lamb they didn't like? That's a, that's a hard, I don't know. That's a good yeah. question. That's a good question. Some did. Yeah. Some did. My other Some... question is marketing. Yep. How much, where does marketing play into that labeling presentation, all of those kind of things in, in that positive eating experience, or was yep. it just a positive experience? They had, you know, they had great lamb chops and a phenomenal bottle of wine with great friends that made amazing memories that put this premium product in their head right. versus um, I had lamb, I like lamb. And then I had this American lamb that didn't taste good. I went to Morton's and bought rack of lamb and it was super gamey. 
you know, or something like that. Or conversely, they bought imported lamb and it was super gamey, but they thought it was domestic lamb because of where they bought it. I mean, there's yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen I've seen sure. mislabeled products in the store for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or people just don't even pay attention to it. Most of the time, that's the yeah. case. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. every single sheep rancher reads every single label in every <laughs> grocery store they go to. But I think the general consumer looks at the dollars and throws it in their cart or not. So one uh, one yeah. other factor, I'm curious. Um, so um, I've heard a lot, and and even just in my own experience, um, there's these dollar values that are blockers for um, people to buy put put a product in their cart or not. So American mm -hmm. lamb is bigger. The rack yep. weighs more. Yep. And so even at similar price per pounds, yep. your New Zealand lamb is going to be 30 to 40 bucks for a rack. American lamb is going to be 80 bucks for a rack yep. just because of the weight of the product. Yep. But that 30 to 40, because it's under 40 bucks, it's easier for someone to say, I got yep. a family of five and I'm going to throw it in my cart and feed my family for less than 10 bucks a head. Yep. Whereas if you got the 80, it's like, oh man, that's 20 bucks. You know, you might even be getting a better value per pound. Right. And most of the time it's not, but you might, you, you know, the theory is, is basically an $80 rack is harder to sell than a, than a $40 rack in general. And then the, the regardless of weight, and then same would be with like legs. So like a leg off of a 200 pound old cropper is going to be like, I don't know, 30, like 25 pounds, it's going to be huge. And so selling that at a per pound price, you're looking at a hundred over hundred dollar yeah. piece of meat that you have to sell. And that's way harder to move than a, and that, and that you see a lot of retail or packers and retailers get creative with that, where they'll slice it up. They'll sell half legs or different things like that. But, yeah. uh, but, but this price point is also a big driver and just carcasses and all that stuff. So absolutely. Um, what, how can we work as an, you know, what, what can the sheep industry do to help try help start to solve this issue of old crops and, and, and how necessary is it going forward? Um, and this is no government involvement. This is just, what can we do as an industry to start improving? And so when COVID hit, they had a backlog in, in, um, they, they couldn't process hogs. And so the hog industry, um, euthanized thousands of hogs to keep their inventory current. I don't want the sheep industry to do that, but their price is much more stable. Their farm gate price is more stable than the sheep industry. And they don't have this old cropper problem like we have. And so like, that's one extreme response to, uh, aged product. Yeah. And so, so what, what can we do? What are some creative ways of thinking? What, you know, how can we, how can we as an industry start to, to change this, um, this trajectory that we seem to just keep going on and making these same mistakes. And you can't, you can't just blame one thing. You can't blame imports. You can't blame the packer. You got, no. you got to come up with an idea that recognizes their responsibility, but we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta change our thinking a little bit here. You know, a couple of things strike me, and one of them is a conversation we've had kind of off and on for a couple of years. But, but 
one gets to kind of this seasonality issue. Um, there's a company that started in Sonora where I grew up, Diesel Turkey. And um, they have, I mean, I've had a Diesel Turkey on the holidays every year since I was a little kid. And it's a premium product. I mean, you're going to pay for a, a 25 pound turkey, you're going to pay 100 bucks or, or better. But it's something you have once a year and it's a real treat. You kind of know who raised it a little bit. And, and yet they are marketing product year round. And so they've figured out other ways. They may only sell whole turkeys at Thanksgiving and Christmas, but they've got deli meat. They've got ground turkey in the grocery store. They've got all these other products that, that have allowed them to dampen the seasonal effects of, of that premium market to some degree. So I, I wonder about some of those opportunities. And I know, I know American Lamb Board and, and some of the packers have been working on, on some of those types of products. And I, I think that has the potential to help. I guess the other thing that strikes me, and you've talked about this before and we've talked about it, um, yeah, it's a, it's a hit to, to call your buyer and find out you have no home for your lambs. But I think managing risk as a producer in such a way that, that you can weather kind of these short-term disruptions in the market, taking a longer-term view um, is, is part of, part of that responsibility. Uh, the old crop situation, I think, is maybe unique to our industry. You know, what do you, old crop turkeys probably get composted. <laughs> well, that, right? yeah, I mean, the solution in a lot of the other proteins is to euthanize them. Yeah. And, and that's, and, and I think I can speak for most sheep ranchers, it's unacceptable yeah, for us. Absolutely. I, absolutely. And that, and that's, as you get super efficient as an industry, those are the risks you run into is right. the things that compromise your efficiency need to be disposed of. And that's, that's not necessarily the big. And so I, I think the other difference there with, with pork and with poultry in particular, in particular is the vertical integration. Yeah. And, and we don't have that in our industry and that, that can be a strength and a weakness, I think at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, gosh, it's such a difficult situation because, um, a lot of it gets down to utilizing grass as best right. I can. Right. Um, but then I, I do think, so I'm about as free market as you get. And, uh, but my last question that I have for you, I think is, really important for us to consider and think about how how what is a proper role of government in our system yeah um we are a small commodity um which means that we're you know we don't have the lobbying dollars of the bigger proteins or things like that to get things done but if we can come up with clear focused um projects or programs that truly help the segments of the industry, we can't, we can be really effective at getting it done because we have, a, you know, the sheep industry is an incredible story. 
um, and not in the just kind of a marketing standpoint, just the mm-hmm. cheap industry built so much of what we have in the U.S. It's, I mean, it's incredible when you start getting into the history. Yeah. Um, but you, what, what are some ideas or things? So like one of the, uh, the government will do these government buys when you get backed up in freezer inventory where they'll buy meat. Um, should the government do uh, government buys for uh, when you get backed up in live inventory? And then some of the rules that regulate who can participate in government buys need to be looked at. So that way you, you can actually buy from the industry rather than um, organizations that are um, organized, you know, legally the correct way to get to participate in those government buys. Like that's one I don't know. Is that, is that a possibility? And then how do you measure that? And then on the import side, um, how do you come up? How does the government um, interact with the imports to allow them to come in, make sure we can supply the American demand, but then prevent the prevent that, that incentive for the retailer to switch to product for margin reasons, rather than pay what is needed to produce that lamb. So there's two questions there. I don't know. And I, any other idea? What do you think? What, what's the government's role in some of this kind of stuff? Because I think there is a role to play. And I'm probably not well-versed enough to know kind of the government purchasing programs. and, and... Well, we're a sheep stuff you should know. And we have no sponsors. And we make no money. And it's just our opinions. Oh, so we're, we are, we are inventing the program. <laughs> it's we're coming up with a new program. That's going to solve this for everybody. And I'm going to go back to our, our conversation on, on uh, reading objectives and say, gosh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, you it, know, it depends. I, it depends. You're a farm it advisor. Depends. It all depends. It depends. <laughs> I, I think there is a role for government in terms of the play of the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. And I, I think whether that's um, government purchases or price reporting or, you know, packers and stockyards types of rules, that, that there is a role um, for government in that regard. I also wonder if, you know, one of the things I've thought about in our very small scale situation, I couldn't put a, a truckload of lambs together. But maybe if if there were ten or fifteen of us that were producing lambs that were similar quality and and age and and so forth, you know, maybe there's a role for us to be able to collaborate or cooperate um, in a way that makes those lambs more marketable. And I think um, you know that's kind of what what we've tried in this industry in the past. Cooperative ownership is good until it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cooperatives. Yeah. The good ones last 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> the bad ones last one. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. we've had wool pools in the past. There are yeah. lamb pools out there. Maybe that's well, mar- marketing pools are different than, yeah. Marketing pools will be different than like a co-op yep. organization. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Cooperative with a lowercase C that, yeah, that exactly. we could cooperate perhaps more than we do now. What what about government subsidies, like direct subsidies to producers or to feeders or to packers or to, you know, what, what, what role, what about subsidizing different segments of the industry? Cause most countries, like, especially in Europe, 
<laughs> and uh, you look at the money the government puts into the sheep industry in Australia and New Zealand, there's a lot of, there's a lot of support yeah. there. And you know, what, what's the, what's the role of that or how, you know, where should that money be directed or where is it missing? I guess is maybe a better way to ask that. Who's not getting well, it. Well, and how do those, how do those subsidies get applied? Is it, is it a yeah. subsidy for the land market or is it a payment recognition of the ecosystem values that, Sheep grazing on the Montezuma on the Montezuma Hills have in terms of carbon sequestration and fuel load reduction and all those types of things. Where where does that value come into the system? That to me is part of the evolution of of kind of a subsidized system, perhaps. Too. Doesn't this doesn't the subsidy come from the necessity for nations to have food security? In general, I mean that's one of the problems we're having right now with with um, the war in Ukraine is the the effect on the grain market because it's such an international market. Yep. And you know, I, I I I think there's lots of reasons to look at subsidizing. Yeah, food security being one of them. But if you also say that that rangeland agriculture provides these other values that aren't reflected in the beef market or the lamb market is a payment for those ecosystem services also a subsidy. Yeah. How about wool subsidies for text? You know, I, I'm just trying and to Which we used to it. have. Yeah. 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 Which we used to have. Um, I think there's to some degree, personally, I think there's a slippery slope with, with subsidies. I guess. So my, I guess my question is, is it when you subsidize direct to the rancher, do they care about their production as much? you know, like wool subsidies, do you care about producing a good quality wool clip? Cause like you do, like I do now, because if I make a good clip, I get more money. If I do a bad clip, mm -hmm. I get no money versus a wool subsidy. I get paid on the pounds. So I just right. need to shear as many pounds as I can to get it. Right. You right. Know, is what. So those, those subsidies to prop up commodity production are different than the subsidies that support a particular type of production system maybe and is is the goal is the goal of subsidization to keep a percentage of sheep production viable and existing in the country i mean or so like wool subsidy is if the goal is just to make sure that we continue to produce wool even in the bad markets then a flat per pound subsidy would achieve that goal, even though there'll be some terrible wools produced just mm -hmm. for the subsidy sake. Mm -hmm. Or I, I, I'm just trying to think through all this stuff. Yeah. yeah there's, a, there's a role there. I don't know. I don't know how to define it, but there's, there's gotta be a role in there for, for a government to help because they're doing it in the other countries. And a lot of that, allows for the farmers to sell at a lower price point to the packers or to mm -hmm. the through the system mm -hmm. and maintain their standard of living mm -hmm. stay in mm -hmm. business essentially and i don't know enough about how those programs are structured in other countries i think in europe it's largely tied to those ecosystem services it's not yeah. necessarily a certain amount of, of euros per pound on your wool it may be tied on to some of those other practices um, or values from grazing animals, but I, I don't know. That'd be something that'd be really interesting to look at more in more detail. So the other, the other idea, the other idea I've been kicking around and 
thinking about on like this import issue is to try to come up with a way um, to implement a, tar a tariff or a tax to make sure or ensure that the value of the imported lamb and the domestic raised lamb stays within a margin. So don't force them to don't force the imported lamb to be more expensive because then you take away our ability to acquire a premium, which is what we want as a, as a brand and as a producer. Um, but then at the same time, uh, make sure that it doesn't spread so far away that you're looking at like we are right now, where the price is less than half of what American lamb is. And these retailers are the profitability of the retail yeah, es essentially slaughtering our demand um, yeah. and pushing back the inventory because the, the old crop inventory is, is um, projections, but it's also sales and it's sales changes depending on market conditions. And so you, you know, it's, the retailers cutting orders has as much negative effect as the packer not, you know, processing them. So right. there, there's, there's multiple levels there. And so I, I don't know some, some way to, I've heard it. Uh, one idea I heard was like, do a, a tonnage, like a tiered tonnage. So like up to this tonnage, there's no tariff. Once you get above this tonnage of import, then there's this much tariff. And then once you get another tonnage, then you get this much tariff so basically being able to just measure volume and the more volume that comes in the more the more tariff or tax has to get paid to keep that keep that product from flooding the domestic market essentially mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the other idea i've heard is like a a uh, do it off of like box lamb value but then you get into price reporting and things like that which are a huge right. challenge but right. you know basically have a tariff kick in when the box lamb uh, import versus domestic spreads to a level and then you have it ever increasing the wider it spreads something along those lines because right now the way it's going is the you know essentially the the retailer distributors are able to capture that market spread so the difference in value like the that example of the imported lambs mm -hmm. for eleven dollars a pound in the grocery store that they're not buying that lamb for nine dollars and selling it at 11 they're buying it for three right <laughs> or something right. like that and they're capturing a majority or the just the importers taking a huge chunk of that it's not the producer in new zealand or the producer in um, australia and it's not the packers over there because they're competing for this market it's the it's for the sure. other end it's that that segment that's taking that that margin and it's growing that margin and so not that they're you know, because I believe in free markets, they need to have the right to be able to do those things. But then how can we, how can the government come in and do it in a fair way? That's not telling everybody what they have to do and what they have to sell it for, but, um, allow for, allow for this free trade of markets within the context of not destroying one or the other, you know, make sure that the American sheep producer continues to produce sheep, sell it at a premium and stay in business. And so. Does the, the sector of the industry that's that's able to profit change over time? So right uh, now, yeah. right now the retailers are able to really increase their margin on imported. What did that look like two years ago, a year and a half ago? What segment of the industry yeah. um, had the advantage at that point? So when um, when we had our huge price run a year ago, the the producer had the leverage. Mm -hmm. First time ever. I mean, I don't yeah, know right. when, but the right. producer had the leverage. Everything was flipped on its head. Um, right. The the retailer did have some pretty pretty strong leverage as well. 
or as far as price setting to the customer because the there was a protein shortage because everybody right. was buying all the meat in the stores and they had to ration meat. Right. So they they had leverage too. Um, but so I mean, yeah, you it does change. It certainly yeah. changes over time. Mm-hmm. I saw a really Cattlefax did a really neat graph on the beef industry and it had the over the last like 15 years it had the percentage of the cow value per segment and so it had like you know cow calf a backgrounder mm-hmm. feedlot packer and retailer and over time it showed their changes uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. over the last three years the retail and packer segments in the beef industry the retailer packer segments had increased their mm-hmm. um percentage of the animal pretty substantially Mm-hmm. Rel- relative to the cow calf, mm-hmm. um, cow calf did increase, um, but not as much as the others. And then the, 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 the feeders and backgrounders stayed the same, which makes sense because you're basically just trading margin right. when you're, when you're feeding animals. So, right. Right. Um, and it, it comes back to what you said earlier that, that our cycle is much more volatile. And so those swings have greater amplitude. They're, they're yeah. more compressed and that's, that's hard for somebody at the producer level like we are to yeah. plan for that. That's what it comes yeah. down to. And I think it definitely, the other side too, uh, you mentioned it at the beginning is, is the recognition of raising sheep. You're raising it in a volatile market and it, these volatile markets affect me at the scale that I operate at and it yep. affects you at the scale you operate at uh, and everybody in between. Like if you have sheep and you're selling three head a year, it's going to affect you to a point like you might not recognize right. it, but the big things are affecting the little things right? pretty substantially. And so, right. Right. And I think, so I think that's the other piece of this that makes the current issue. So challenging is that while this is going, while this volatility is happening, we've got fuel prices going, we've got every input price that we deal with. Oh Yeah just skyrocketing. And so it's kind of that perfect storm where on the income side, things are, are rough at the producer level and everything else that we buy as inputs has gone up astronomically. Yeah. And it's interesting to me too, because the, the, right, that $2 a pound is under market. That's still phenomenally high relative to the last 10 years. Right. But because of the increase in all of your other inputs, it's not much of an increase. And right. so it it's really, yeah, that's fascinating that. And of course the, the production segment, they flex their price, uh, discovery leverage or their, their leverage, they flex it by cutting supply yep. and we're in an extremely hot coal market. Um, and which is, which is really fascinating as well. And it's probably holding up the feeder market. Um, yep. Yeah, it's it's really we have this really super strong coal U market. Yeah. And so and then we have this depressed feeder and lamb live lamb market, depending on depending on where you're selling, which is the weirdest thing. Right. Um, But with those two things, you have incentives for the producers to cut coal, you cut you numbers and liquidate inventory, essentially. So, yeah. those will lead to a shortage. Yep. And in the sheep industry, you're making a one-year decision because your production, the lambs yep. that I raise this year will be bred and lamb out next year. Yep. Um, so it's a one-year, it's a one-year turn 
And so, yep. you know, who knows when exactly it'll come through, but yeah, it, but it will turn. It it'll will turn. turn and it'll turn violent and it'll turn tough and it'll be great. If you own ewes and you're raising lambs, it'll be horrible yep. if you're a packer buying them and trying to resell them to, yep. uh, to a retailer that's trading you yep. off of import value. So, yep. and then in another six months, it'll flip the other way. Yeah. <laughs> right. It'll be horrible right. if you own the use and great if you're, a packer, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, yeah, it's as much. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's such a big issue. I think our whole industry is facing. And I, I, you know, I know we're not answering any questions and I know a lot of people are probably screaming at the radios, like you've left this out, you left that out. But um, <laughs> the point of the topic was to get you to start screaming. So that way we can have some, you know, really start thinking about this as an industry and talk about it. And yeah, you know, and our next ASI convention, have this be a really big issue for everybody to, and really try to, to make it productive, really work on that question of what is the government's role in this? And mm -hmm. hopefully we can come up with a, with a comprehensive plan that benefits the industry as a whole and doesn't kick, you know, doesn't put a firewall against any imports, because I think that's one of the biggest mistakes we can make is think that imports are doing all of this because they're not, there's, they're affecting it. You know, and it's definitely something we need to work on. But, but it's not the not the it's, only factor. It's not the whole picture. We get rid of the we get rid of them, then we just end up with old croppers in the, in the spring every <laughs> other year. So you know, we don't we don't solve our problems. So we really gotta. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a there's a there's a lot of things here that we need to consider. And I think for me, one of the the questions I've got to got to noodle through is what is the value of stability and predictability for me at my scale and at my yeah. uh, my point in the production system um, and, and how, you know, what am I willing to pay for that? Whether yeah. it's, it's given up some of the market value of, of what I produce or um, maybe accepting some government um, participation in the industry, you know, what is the value of being able to have that greater predictability and stability? Yeah. No, that's a good question. And we, yeah, I, I, that nothing would <laughs> as, as strong as I am saying, you can't just cut off all imports. I'm just as strong saying we don't want a flat, stable market. We want market <laughs> price discovery. We want that yeah. because you don't, all markets have volatility. If you take volatility out of your market, all you're doing is giving the volatility to another segment. Right. So like, you know, I mentioned feeders right. and backgrounders, their market value or percentage of that cow never changed. Right. That's because they took the risk out of their, their price discovery. They, they, they're buying their, they're buying and hedging their corn and they're buying and selling their cattle as they buy them all through the futures. And it's stabilizing their income. Yep. That, but then you have the, packers and retailers and cow calves increasing, you know, so as that price of cow goes up, their percentage of the cow is going down, but their dollars are remaining the same because they're not capturing that appreciation over time of your commodity right. or, you know, change in dollar value. I mean, we've seen inflation right now. If you lock your dollars per head in, you don't get the inflated values. So right. there's huge risk to 
there, there's huge risk to taking volatility out of the market. I don't think that should be a goal. I get nervous about that. I think the other, extreme volatility that we need to talk about. <laughs> so. And I think the, yeah, I agree. And I think the other, the other issue, and I, I know at my scale, this is easy to, to fall into this trap. I'll let you, you speak to your own perspective on it. It's easy to say we're just price takers. I have no control over what the market for lamb is this mm -hmm. year. I have no control over what the market for wool is this year. And to some degree, that's true. But I do have the ability to think about how to add value or manage the risk of, of yeah. price drops, even at my scale. One of the best things that it jumped in my mind, I forgot it. You just brought it back. But you mentioned like on these lambs that you're trying to sell, you're selling into multiple markets. This one market you're selling into, you're struggling. Yep. These other ones, you're getting them sold. Yep. So yep. just diversity in your outlets is breathing. Yep. It's important. It's super yep, important exactly. to recognize and, and work in. Yeah, that's a yeah, very good point there. Yeah. Well, and I, I think our wool disposition this year is another example of that. We, yeah. we gave our wool away, but it's an investment in a potential market for our coarse wools yeah. that I felt was worth investing in this year. Um, and I think that's all of us that have been doing this for very long, your family's been doing it a lot longer than mine has. We're doing it because of that long-term view, right? Yeah, this mm -hmm. is a, this year sucks in lots yeah. of ways. Well, and you budget for it too. Exactly. But yeah. we're also budgeting over that long-term, right? Yeah. And that's, that's part of diversity, diversification of your market outlets and, yeah. and your risk management strategy too. If you can't sell your wool, you market, you market for no income. And you give it away for a couple of years, trying to develop a market. And then once you get four or five years into the developed market, all of a sudden you can budget for that wool now. Mm -hmm. you know, that's a, that's mm -hmm. a great example. And yep. it's the same with like direct lamb sales. You can, yep. you, you know, if you're going to experiment with direct lamb sales, you budget for failure, yep. you work on it, develop the market. And then all of a sudden you can budget for it. The one yep. big mistake a lot of people makes is by over anticipating new ideas. So, yeah. And not, not willing, not realizing the kind of the investment time horizon that's necessary yeah. to, to get that built. You know, that diversity of markets and outlets is, that's an interesting, I just thinking about it, that's an interesting area for your governmental support or subsidy mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. developing markets, new markets. I mean, we have this huge shift into this light lamb trade, and that's going to yeah. take a lot of capital to develop the infrastructure for that. And, you know, subsidization for developing those kind of markets is a good idea yep. that to me, that would make sense. Yeah. How exactly to do it. And where, you know, that's, that's yeah. a product of like years of conversation, but. Yeah. 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 I think that's a, that's how do we invest kind of collectively in that? Yeah. We got these super healthy parts of the industry, right? We got these yep. just absolutely booming markets in these light lamb trades, especially in the South and in the, yep. in the Northeast, in the Northeast. Yeah. And, um, you know, how do you support that and you work on the infrastructure to get the lambs out here that are selling for nothing out there? You know? yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We got to put them on trains. Well, trains are, <laughs> trains are all screwed up too. So <laughs> there's someday, someday we should do like the sheep stuff. You should know 
tour of historic sheep infrastructure. Just go on the road. Yeah, so, yeah. I've always wanted to do a hit, like get into the history of, of the industry because, yeah, I mean, it's it, it it absolutely blows my mind when you really start looking into um, the people that start got their start in the sheep industry and what they accomplished and also just how the the sheep and wool markets the meat and wool markets um built i mean huge amazing cities in the united states i mean san angelo texas is a great example yep. wool wool built san angelo texas you got yep. um you know san francisco was built on the gold rush and a lot of stuff but that was a huge export uh yep. port for you know lamb and lamb and wool Yep. And uh, I think that the wool growers headquarters is there. Wool growers is the oldest association in the, in the state of California. And the they, formed, they formed so that they could buy a ship to get California wool around the horn of South America. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what the, the other thing that's amazing too, is in the Midwest, the, or the, the mountain States, the range wars between the sheep yeah. and the cows, that's yeah. the history there is just in, incredible. I mean, then there's, yeah, it's, it, that wasn't very long ago either. And nope. um, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so much history and then the textile industry in the Northeast. And yeah, I mean, even like my sister lived in Vermont for a long time, the history there and the sheep ranches and the clover ranches that were all up there in in that yep. cold country in Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire. I mean, it's yeah. Yep. One day, one day. <laughs> oh, well, this has been fun, Ryan. Thank you. Yeah, I think we broke an hour, so <laughs> I think we did. We could probably go on another hour. Yeah. Still not reach a conclusion. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> That's the point of the day. But That's hopefully, right. hopefully we got some conversations going and and um yeah, I mean, this is this is a huge challenge. This is a really big challenge, and and this is this is kind of the worst I've seen it. And a lot of it's due to the COVID supply chain infrastructure issues make it a lot worse than it is. But I mean, even just I don't know, making the same mistake every year is frustrating sometimes. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's to say the least. Yep. Well, this has been sheep stuff you should know. I'm Dan Macon up here in Auburn in the Sierra foothills. Ryan Mahoney is getting ready to have lamb shanks for a birthday, a kid's <laughs> birthday dinner down in Rio Vista. Yeah. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Ryan. Sounds good. See you, Dan. Thank you.